Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I was sequestered away in a room in the basement. Oh, they won't let you out? <laughs> There's David. Haven't seen him hey. for a while. Morning, day. Hey, good morning there. Let me try to get a little light on my subject here. Yeah, I'm a little dark myself. You're, you're not that bad, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I just heard from Matt this morning. He says, yeah, you're pretty dark. Uh, this sounds like nihilism to me, my blog this morning. I didn't read it. My premise, step one. If we all agree that not killing people may be pretty important to the gospel, if that is at the core of the gospel, and by that, you know, rejecting the just war tradition, what takes place is a a kind of subtle shift that just everybody seemed to have gone along and assumed that what was happening with Constantine, and I'm not saying it wasn't, but they just seemed to assume that everything that happened with Constantine was God-ordained, so much so that that began to trump their reliance. There becomes a different biblical interpretation. Their understanding of who Jesus is, the authority of the Bible, is mitigated by what's happening in the Roman Empire, they literally, I mean, I think you can witness that they're going to fit Jesus into Rome rather than uh, suggest that Constantine needs to do what Christians are supposed to do. All the things that we would take, imagine takes place in conversion. You renounce the world, you give up notions of power, you become a servant, you reject violence. Apparently, no one explained about the Sermon on the Mount, and apparently it wasn't just Constantine and everybody. Not that's That can't be right. When Matt comes on, he'll, he'll explain why this cannot be the case. <laughs> hey, Paul, you've got this, this Constantinian piece, I want it, we could call it, because now Christians aren't being persecuted. Don't you think that could be one of the reasons why nobody really raised an eyebrow or really got upset? Because like, Oh, shoot, we've had 300 years of persecution. Finally, we have a, you know, quote-unquote savior, not unlike, you know, someone like even your past president who was like, now we're going to get all our, you know, everything's going to happen good for us. But we're willing to overlook all the other things, and yet it's it's another disaster, as we just saw sort of your last four years. But you know what I mean? In a sense, I'm just trying to say sort of an empathetic, boy, it must be nice not to be getting slaughtered or killed or persecuted or chased or, you know, so maybe, okay, maybe we can make kind of a rapprochement with the government and yeah, maybe things will be, we'll we'll, we'll try to bring back the Jesus ethic, but it's like suddenly you've got this peace in the land. That's a very unresearched opinion. No, I think that is the, the thing that was appealing. The Pax Romana, they literally, in Bainton's description, thought of the Pax Romana as the fulfillment of the passage in Isaiah that they shall beat their swords into plowshares because there was a kind of, for a period, a relative period of peace for Christians except for those on the edges of the empire. The way that Bainton is describing it, and I'm no historian, a lot of this, I think, man, this needs uh, research. But he's saying even prior to the, you know, as Constantine is rising, Christians are beginning to pick up the sword in the struggle of which emperor is going to accede to the throne. So that they're already, uh, almost when he comes into power, they're already accommodated in the notion that Rome is Christian and Christianity is Roman. That it just seemed to be a gradual and almost an overwhelming thing. I mean, that I think the Trump analogy is good. You're willing to swallow hard. Uh, of course, you know, he has his little piccadillos. What, what is killing a person here or there in light of the peace of Christ? That he literally describes himself as a martyr, carrying on the tradition of the martyrs, that he said that just as they... You know, the blood of the martyrs extended the gospel. He is going to fulfill that martyrdom, that witness, through the power of the sword. That is, he completes the Christian witness by the power of the sword. 
Yeah, that. Well, I, I read your essay this morning. The, the just I got up early enough. Your your blog, and uh, I mean, you've, that's a tremendous summary of of kind of everything we've we've been doing up until now. And of course, in that, I'm doing things very, pretty quickly. Uh, a kind of summation. Let me say things I'm not saying there. You know, J. Denny Weaver saying that what they were presuming of. I'm not saying that I know what the role of those councils. They weren't necessarily foundational. I don't think that foundation displaced the foundation of the New Testament. So I don't think you have to go with him there. But I think he makes a point that I don't know. You know, I'd I'd be happy to hear a refutation of the point that the image of God that is going to be discussed at a minimum is not one that is going to make the life of Jesus our model. There is literally a loss that will be regained. You know, this is the thing that the peace movements that are going to arise, to say anything is lost. I sometimes fall into that language. I don't think we lose Christianity or we lose the Holy Spirit. But as I begin this class, I said that that what we're tracing, if we're trying to trace Christianity, it may be untraceable because the very nature of the powerlessness, the underdog Christians, is not one that's going to be, you know, the law of the cross, the forgiveness of the enemies. I don't know where you're going to find that. But having said that, what is taking place in the councils, it's not that it's necessarily in what it's saying wrong, but in what it's not saying, what it clearly allows for is the rise of Augustine's Neoplatonism. It's going to allow for Anselmian divine... In other words, I think the history of the church in its substitutionary notions of substitutionary atonement, notions of a violent God, notions of violent Christians that the the debates about the, the person of Christ and the work of God were not such that what was included in those images was an image of God that would exclude this violent image of God and the violent atonement imagery and the notion that Christians can be violent. So just in what is excluded, can't we just raise that question and say, well, maybe they should have talked about to Constantine, that actually uh, for the first 300 years, Brother Constantine, we didn't use the sword, but apparently, uh, you know, and we all understand that it's very hard to face power, but why wouldn't they? I mean, that's what we expect today of somebody who is a Christian, even if they're a political leader. We do call them to be accountable to their faith. You know, it may have just seemed impossible to really challenge Constantine with the gospel. And as a result, I'm afraid that it wasn't simply that they accommodated Constantine, but the church itself then shifted. And I think that that's the article I put up, you know, that you can just go through and list these 10 things. Here's 10 things that happened as a result of Constantine. You know, you can't dispute them. These are just, this is just what happened. And if you don't see that as impacting the gospel, well, then you must have a view of the gospel that's Constantinian. So, Paul, um, we need to have a book group on this book here, um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. So, Alan Kreider is a uh, Mennonite uh, historian, and uh, he's now passed, but he states that the whole thing with Constantine not being baptized until the end of his life, he states that historically that was a move on Constantine's part because he somewhat understood that he was using the sword. He recognized that that was a teaching of the church. He did not want to be baptized until, until, until later on. And I'm sure there's more that uh, research that can be done in that. But uh, I, thought, I thought that was really interesting. And certainly I mean, we see, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you can see how quickly things can change, right? How quickly a generation can turn, turn from, from God, how quickly they can turn. Part of me wonders if I would have done anything different. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know if I would have uh, in, in the sense that uh, you had mentioned it, and I, I, I think maybe it's uh, Bainton that was talking about it, is that everybody seems to read scripture into their age. You, you come through on and off again persecution, and then all of a sudden, the only world you know, the, the Roman Empire, hey, listen, not only is this okay, but it's, it's going to be the, the religion of the state now. That has to sway a lot of people. That's and, good, yeah. So the, the Constantine was aware at least aware of the teaching. Of the teaching and aware that there was a contradiction in being a Christian and being an emperor and doing the things that an emperor has to do. I would suggest that Constantine, in that sense, is more conscientious than any American president has been since. And that is that to be a president in this country, you have to agree that you're willing to push the nuclear button you have to agree that you know no, you're not going to get elected as president and maintain pacifism, but that is not pressed upon people today. And as you're describing it, yeah, I think that it was an awareness there that we're seeing dropped. You know, the the story, and I I assume it's mythological, but even if it is a, a kind of myth, it still captures what you're saying. And that is the story, you know, we eventually come to the point that even under Constantine, he's wanting his soldiers to be Christians. And so he has them baptized in mass, but he tells them to hold their right arm up out of the water because he doesn't want their killing arm to be Christian. <laughs> I know that can't be true, but that... Uh, <laughs> But that captures the, what you're describing, even in the person of Constantine. Well, that, that sounds like, that, that picks up with Luther. Doesn't he have, you know, God, God has two arms, his holy arm and his Satan is one arm and Jesus is the other? Yeah. That same yeah. sort of imagery that he's capable of both. And that's, a, that's this huge dualism that it's rife in Christianity today is the idea that God is both loving and kind, but he's also just and angry. And so he, he's on both, si both sides of the fence. Luther thought that when Pilate's wife warned him, have nothing to do with this man, that was actually the devil tempting Pilate to not go through with killing him because we need to get him killed so we can have the blood uh, to be forgiven. All these different ideas and all these things sort of sort of culminating. I'm, I'm, I've told you I'm in, a, I'm in a Facebook group, and one of the guys there, is, he's, a, he's actually a professor of theology up here in, in Alberta. And one of the comments he made the other day, I, I think I saved it somewhere because I wanted to sort of expand on it, was Jesus's ethical teaching. There's nothing special about it. You can find it anywhere else. It exists in the prophets. It exists in the scripture. What God needed was this perfect sacrifice that had to come to this earth. That's his role is to, is to you know, God's bloodlust has to be satisfied. And, and I was shocked. Like, I thought he actually put this in writing. Like, you know, and so it's literally, like you say, we, we, we get with the J. Denny Weaver thing. You go from suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's, there's just no, no explanation of the ethic or the moral or the teaching of Jesus within the creed. So I think he just becomes the whole way people live and think in the world. And, you know, his life really isn't that relevant. We just need to get him on the cross and get forgiven so we can go to heaven. So why are we even wasting our time? I had to get up at six this morning. Yeah. <laughs> I just want my ticket to heaven. Thank you very much. Yeah, you can do it. And that's the, literally the ethics of Jesus. The past, and, and of course, the main thing about the ethics is the nonviolence. Uh, not to say that's all there is, but nonviolence captures that thing that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You only get that as long as Jesus is the model. But there is a subtle shift then to doctrine apart from the model so that the theology is separated out from ethics. Weaver's point is we can already see that in the early church councils is that there is no discussion of ethics. There is no discussion of taking up the sword. There, you know, what is being discussed, and this, Bainton actually brings this out, the Donatist controversy at the same time, that's involved, you know, that's in North Africa, and what is involved in that is also an ethnic and tribal controversy. Same thing with the Aryan controversy. That's not just a theological divide, 
that those who are becoming Aryan are of a particular ethnicity and they're pitted over and against the Latin church. In a sense, that's just obvious to us today that the way that Christianity breaks down, I mean, the divides between us, well, they are theological, but for example, in the Christian churches on the issue of uh, not using the instrument, some people pretend like that has nothing to do with the Civil War. That has nothing to do with the North-South divide. Oh, that has everything to do with the Civil War. You can pretend that and maybe even argue the case, but to just leave that out is kind of a naive understanding. And I'm afraid that naive reading is the way that to just take those early councils, and I'm not saying that the early councils, that we shouldn't look at that. I'm not just throwing it out in its entirety. But I think as with any of the church tradition, we have to read it with a critical understanding and raise these questions that I'm raising. Well, wait a minute. What is it that's being left out in the creeds? Not that they're necessarily mistaken. And of course, eventually the church will divide over creedalism. This is the Christian church saying, I don't completely buy into no creed but Christ. You know, well, of course, we, we do formulate an understanding. But I do think that it is correct to say that in the creeds, there is necessarily the power of the sword is already being exercised, even in the topics that are chosen. I think it was to Constantine's political advantage to focus on issues like Arianism and the Donatist controversy, because those were precisely those peoples that needed subjugation. And so the Arians particularly are just going to be classified with the barbarians. And so when they're talking about barbarians, they're actually talking about, in terms of the Christian church, people that would be aligned with something like Martin W. Stone probably taught. <laughs> the, the point that Kreider makes is that up till Constantine, the church's whole focus was its habits. You're seeking to practice the, the habits of, of Jesus. And then by the time you get to Constantine, he's aware of those habits, and he's aware of the habit of uh, not killing. But then later on, uh, it's interesting, he says here, uh, said Constantine must be allowed to have different habits. And the restraint of these habits will come from God who honors reason and who takes his seat in the intellect. Kreider goes on, he says, nevertheless, Constantine was saying to the saints that because he wanted life to be governed by reason, there must be reasonably be more than one habitual way to be Christian, and that it would be legitimate for some Christians to kill judiciously in battle. It's interesting because that all leads up to some of our talks with Augustine. I mean, that was a huge issue in the church. Constantine had kind of created a, a huge dilemma, and so what do you, what do, you do with that? Yeah, I like the way Kreider's putting that. That's also the way Yoder describes it. What we're going to call natural theology, it, you know, just kind of this understanding that all people have a capacity to understand God. And of course, it is back to our Romans class and that who are those Gentiles who have the law written on their heart, that there's going to be a whole theology that unfolds from that. I haven't done it, the his, historical work, but I'm presuming that an Aristotelian notion of a kind of natural understanding, natural reason, the Greek understanding, you know, that is a clearly influencing Augustine, that is the common sense that is being taken up. And literally, well, we all know this to be the case, that kind of reasoning. And my point was, well, wait a minute. Isn't that precisely what Christianity is challenging? That in somebody like Paul, oh, the, the Jewish religion, the Jewish religious authorities, Jewish tradition, all told Paul that what he needed to do as a Pharisee was arrest and bring bound to Jerusalem those Christians, or you know, they weren't even using the word, the people of the way, who he saw as insurrectionists, those people who were destroying the religion. And so what we see in the conversion experience of Paul, but of people in general, is that this is a holistic worldview shift. And that's what we're going to lose with Constantine, that now 
people can assume that we don't need to reject the worldview of Constantine because he's a Christian. So where Christians of the first three centuries recognized Rome was the evil empire, quite literally. I'm thinking Star Wars here, by the way. You know, this is the in the in the final Star Wars trilogy, the, the kind of the ingenious thing there is, you know, throughout the Star Wars, they're fighting the empire. But at the end, they are the empire. They are the evil people. But the Roman Christians did not have the capacity to turn around and say, we are the evil people. We are the evil empire. And yet my point would be, well, wait a minute. Isn't that what conversion always does? That we're able to turn around and say, it's not just that I'm evil, but that my worldview, my understanding in particular of the way I treat other people violently, that all of that is entailed in a true conversion experience. So even though it sounds radical that we should expect somebody like Constantine to have a worldview conversion, well, wait a minute, that was just the standard uh, understanding in Christianity. Just as you were talking, I was thinking about that book by um, Barna and Frank Viola, Pagan Christianity. It got heavily slammed by all, a lot of people who are, are, are completely sold out on the institutional church. But it's actually quite profound. I mean, just they're, you know, I don't, I don't know how much they trace about the, the whole question of violence and whatnot, but they certainly talk about all the, the rituals and the hierarchy and the bishops and the, just the whole t- t- infant baptism and all of that just coming out of just a, a culture of accumulation of tradition and rituals over the years. A long, long cry from Paul's small groups meeting in homes that were this kind of radical reorientation of, of small groups toward Jesus. The other thing, as you were th- I was thinking about the evil empire, wouldn't we consider that nowadays, wouldn't that be like New York Yankees and New York Yankee fans? Isn't that pretty much the, the empire we all have to stand against? I assume that this thing has us all in its grip and, and, you know, how do you turn around? And that's, that's what the United States is faced with. Can Christians in the United States turn around and say, wait a minute, we are the evil empire. And I'd say Christians in the West, even the the whole, much of the whole Western church, not just Americans include us in that too. In as much as Christianity is implicated in colonialism, in oppression of native peoples, in slavery, and you know, you can just go through. And Matt, I, I do want you to jump in here because I think we continually have to tell the other story. To just paint this in darkness, because at the same time I'm saying all this, we also all know that there are instances where Christians have played a counter role to their Christian, you know, the other Christians in protecting native rights, in identifying with the enslaved, with identifying with the oppressed. But of course, we tend not to hear about the Frederick Douglasses, the people who were in fact, Douglas is an, is a, an exception to the rule, but those people are going to be wiped out uh, historically or at least obscured. I messaged Paul this morning, you know, after I read his, his blog and, you know, I liked it, you know, and I read it twice actually, but I have to admit that it gave me a little bit of, you know, pause and I'm, I'm open to, I'm open here to you guys helping me to feel better about it. Uh, first of all, I want to say, David, thank you for the reminder of the patient ferment of the early church. I wish I, you know, it's a great book. Paul asked me for books, you know, the recommendations for the class, and I I should have mentioned that one, and I forgot it. It it is an excellent book. Actually, Brian's on. I I saw that he had read that, and he kind of, that's how I discovered it. But it is an excellent resource. We've covered a a lot of ground, so it might be, you know, we've we've moved pretty quickly, you know. Claire, back to um, Weaver. You know, I would just want to ask him about that bit, that whole bit there in in the Nicene Creed about, and he became incarnate of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became man. And to talk about what that means, because I would think that the early church, and this is what they they talked about, you know, is that Christ is fully human. He's the truly human one, and that encompasses the ethical 
that encompasses everything that he taught that encompasses you know that he's like the capital m man you know he's the man and so to just pretend like the like the nicene creed which of course comes from the council of nicaea which was of course convened under constantine didn't address the ethics of christ as dubious you know i'd want to talk to him there about that and then the other thing about ethics is is that like i, I don't know guys i again when i'm reading through Chrysostom and St. Basil and Gregory the Theologian and Gregory of Nyssa and these early Christian writers, all they're talking about for the most part is ethics, about living, you know, Chrysostom writes about on poverty. St. Basil writes a whole book on social justice. These guys are writing about ethics at the time that these councils are being convened. And so part of, I guess, the pause that I had earlier, and this is the part where I could really use the help of the group, I guess, is because I also have problems with whatever we want to call like a Constantinian Christianity. But but it does get, make me think, though, I'm afraid of a sort of nihilism, I guess, because I think that there's, and this is what I texted Paul earlier, is that there could be a way to kind of narrate the story that leaves us with that feeling of nihilism. And that is, is that who's truly reigned for the over the church? Has it been Christ? Has it been Constantine and his progeny? You know, who's guided her history? Has it been the Holy Spirit? Has it been the evil spirit? You know, has the devil reigned over history, both in the church and outside of the church? And do deception and violence and therefore nihilism ultimately and sort of an inescapably reign over us? I know that, I know that that's not what Paul wants to say, but I also want to say, can the fathers be trusted? And if the Holy Spirit doesn't reign through the wisdom and history of the church, then who does? It's kind of a scary thought to say that, well, I don't. Th- and I like what David said earlier, his point about, being situated in history and i do think that that's a it's a valid point it doesn't make the use of violence any you know doesn't make it right or anything like that but i think that what david was saying and and david correct me if i'm wrong here is that we all live in in a certain context for instance there was a long time in the church where slavery was just a thing and until you know there wasn't really an unambiguous kind of condemnation of it until Gregory of Nyssa, clear up into the time of like the seventh ecumenical council, you know, or right around that, that time. And so in other words, it was kind of like a given. And, and just like violence was for many years, you know, was, was sort of a, a given contextually. Uh, that's not to say that it was right. It's just to say that we all are children of our cultural, socioeconomic and political context. And we can, you know, we can't really, it's very difficult to kind of, like David said, to imagine that we would do something different, to imagine that we would be the people who said to Constantine, like, look, we know that you ended the slaughter of our people with the Edict of Milan in 313, and we appreciate that. But we want you to, you know, we want you to abdicate your throne. We want you to step down. That, that would be extraordinarily difficult for any of us, I think, to kind of lead that charge. And maybe it's telling that no one did. I brought up the fact earlier in the class that I thought that it's also telling that how come the church in the, you know, has never formalized a dog and made it sort of dogmatic, you know, peace, nonviolence? Why, how come that was never a sort of a formal pronouncement, you know, in the councils? Maybe that is telling on both sides as to whether it's legitimate or illegitimate. But I do think that it's murky and I, and I hate to, mur- to sort of muddy the waters even more. What's given me pause throughout the, all this kind of talking is to say that I'm really hesitant to say that in some way, like we can't trust the integrity of the, the, the councils because they were convened under Constantine. I would want to say that they, they can't say it all. Like David said, they're living in a very particular time and place and context and pressures from invading hordes of barbarians and all these other things. And so there's a lot to be considered there. I'm, I'm asking this again, almost from like a pastoral standpoint to my friends who are pastors and Christians, that if I, if I can't trust the integrity of, of what the, of how the Holy Spirit has worked through the history of the church and through the council and through the wisdom of the sort of the Holy Fathers, then forgive my lack of faith or whatever, but it's, it's hard for me to, to trust anything, right? The church that gave us the Bible, it's the church that, you know, and if we're going to say, well, they may have talked about the divinity of Christ, the two natures and all this stuff. But since they didn't talk about nonviolence, it didn't talk about ethics in the way that we want them to, then they failed and gave birth to like 1700 years of institutionalized, unleashed the demonic, you know, upon the world and kind of like this false church. And so like that, that stuff kind of scares me, you know, because I'm like, wow. And, and maybe I'm just a child of postmodernity in that way to say like, wow, I know that we should be suspicious. We should ask that critique, you know, we should we should um, offer those critiques. And 
But what about the faith that's handed down to us once once for all through the fathers? Like, who is in charge of that? And if and if we can't trust them, well, why should we accept them that Jesus, for instance, is, is uncreated? Why should we trust them that, that the Trinity is a, a viable way to talk about God? Well, not just viable, but just true. And we could go on and on uh, the other pronouncements. Th- these are some of the questions that I had from, from the article. I, but what was saying all that, I would want to say, I, I want to affirm, Paul, what you're saying about common sense and about the churches maybe being co-opted by the powers and things like that. But I would also want to kind of cling to, because I don't know what else to cling to, the integrity of the Holy Spirit's guiding the church throughout the ages to hand us down the faith that we have now and to not call it into question to basically say like, all oh, those guys were compromised by their by political pressures and their you know racism towards the Aryans or, or whatever else. Matt, that's why we have Paul Axton to replace all the fathers, to replace all that history. To, it's, just, it's just easy. There's something you can bank on. You can take that to the bank. And that is, and that's, the, honestly, Tim, I mean, that's funny. And it's also like a complication because I, I literally consider Paul as a, a spiritual father. It does complicate it because I, I love Paul and he's my friend and he's my spiritual father and my spiritual director in many ways. That makes it even more complicated, right? Because I know that what Paul doesn't, doesn't want to say is, is that I got it right. And, all, and so did John Howard Yoder and Stanley Horowitz. And that's pretty much it. You know, it's like, I know Paul doesn't want to say that. You said that to me several times. <laughs> no, yeah, I think though, Matt, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think I like. I mean, just to use an analogy or metaphor, I think of the idea of evolution. I mean, when you look at the history of evolution biologically, there's all these fits and starts and things go, and there's dead ends. And so, if we can look at two thousand years of of church history as evolution, there's a whole biology and science behind all of that but yeah some of it's good some mutations are good some are horrible some create some really huge bottlenecks and millions of species are wiped out and on probably a view of history what the spirit i think the spirit is doing is as he's drawing people toward nonviolence, they're moving toward what god desires and as we move away from that we're moving away from what god desires so it's 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 not like we just have this black and white fit everybody into a category. But I mean, even Mr. Trump, I honestly believe he did some good things. He actually did some good things for your country. It's not just, oh, everything he did was horrible. It, there's always sort of a mixture, but it's, it's this idea that we're trying to evolve, so to speak, toward a nonviolent stance. And so you brought up slavery. Yay, wonderful. We, we got rid of that in 18-whatever. We, we hopefully did. But what about the vast numbers of Christians today who don't think women should be in leadership? I've been in, I haven't been in a church for over 30 years that didn't have either women were allowed to be ordained or at least be pastors. Or, that's the churches I've been a part of. So to imagine churches that don't ordain women or allow women to be leaders, like that's, to me, that's just unfathomable. It still exists in huge swaths of Christendom. Well, to me, that's, that's a form of violence, I guess. I don't know. I'm just making that up as I go along. But it's, it's oppressing or suppressing or marginalizing a huge gift that God has given the world. So that's my two cents, 25 cents worth. Before someone else answers, I want to first of all say thank you because that's a, that's a really helpful way to look at it. Because I do think that that's, something, that's saying something slightly different. In other words, like what you're saying is, is that there's an evolution or correct me if I'm wrong here, is that there that, that, that we can evolve, you know, theologically and that that is precisely what happened through things like, you know, for many years, we didn't have the Bible. Right. Like no one had a New Testament as we know it. But then we had one and then we didn't have like these formulations about, well, Christ was fully God and fully man. Uh, we didn't have these formulations about the Trinity that I'm, I think most of us accept or, or all of us accept. In other words, these things happen throughout the throughout the ages uh, then maybe there were some things like paul and i love what tim said about as we're moving closer to nonviolence, that we're moving closer to the will of god and and towards like of course like the freedom of uh, the slaves and perhaps even like the freedom of women to serve you know in ministry and things like that like i love all that but i do think that that's something maybe slightly different than saying that yeah and we we also want to add to that that these that these that the founders of, of the church or, or whatever you know the, the holy spirit got it wrong. I guess that's the one thing that I guess I, I want to be really careful about saying is that maybe the councils didn't say everything, but did the Holy Spirit get things wrong in what was like not said at the councils or in the formulations that were made? Because now we, we could be sort of 
repudiating the faith that was handed out to us, you know, from the fathers. But I, I do want to hear from the other group because this is something that I'm wrestling with, and I I would like your your help. And that was helpful, Tim. So thank you, David. Give us the the diplomatic, kind answer that will bring us all together in unity. <laughs> that's that's putting a lot of pressure on me, but. <laughs> As Matt was talking, something uh, really triggered with me, and that is I, um, I became a Christian in 1986, kind of under the tutelage of an aunt and uncle and a church that was very um, anti-government, uh, a lot of things anti, but also in some ways they were very patriotic. And then I continued to nurture my faith in that to even to the point where I remember uh, the sermon that I preached uh, that I've always called the worst sermon I've ever preached. And that was that I basically was given reasons why us bombing Iraq was of God. You know, I'd come up with godly means of, you know, freeing the Kurds and different things like that. And, you know, that we were a just nation. And I was so, but that was kind of what I was brought up in. Now, if you ask me, I love Jesus. I mean, I was, uh, I was passionate about Jesus, but but slowly, I began to see my passion for Jesus has never changed, but my understanding has has changed quite a bit. And so maybe that's some of the evolving part. Some may never evolve, right? Um, they'll they'll always stay a certain way, and maybe they're they're heading in the right way. I just think that there's so many powerful influences on us. I think we have to, as Christians, we have to constantly detox ourselves of our culture and really figure out what it, what it means to walk with Jesus. And so when you take uh, the early church fathers and you take those, uh, those big uh, meetings, you know, you have to take into fact that they were, they were trying to figure out how to deal with certain heresies, right? Uh, that they saw within the church. They, they, they saw different things. And so in some sense, they created formulas or, uh, you know, creeds to distinguish between certain groups of people and different things. And so unfortunately, everything, uh, and, and, you know, maybe even some of the things that we're doing now, we have blind spots and we don't, we don't see those blind spots. And uh, hopefully somewhere later on, somebody will spot those blind spots and say, you know, they were on the right track right? They love Jesus. They were working towards peace, but this was an area they need to work on. And, and so maybe that's the, the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit was working with fallible people. It kind of becomes a, a tough thing, and, it, and maybe it should change how, how we address, right? How do, how do we address people when, when we see their blind spots? You know, how can we do that in a way that's, that's loving and caring and to do it in peaceful and patient ways? Ultimately, I don't know, you know, what we see in America today. I do see small pockets of people making some great strides and changes, and I see the church changing. But, you know, ultimately, we, we trust God that God's got the ship under control, and let's just play our small part. I know why people like myself have had huge blind spots, because that's what I, that's all I knew, and I thought that was Jesus. When I was a child, and my dad was kind of a my superhero, let's say, you know, he was the always you know, the person I always wanted to be when I, when I grew up. I think one of the bittersweet things about becoming an adult is figuring out that parents are not perfect, <laughs> that they have way too many mistakes. And, and, and with that, I realized, well, there's a different way of knowing the parents. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, so with, with that, you know, there's a, the relationship changes. Uh, a little bit. In my case, I think it was for for the best. Uh, there are things that sometimes I talk to, uh, uh, you know, to my dad about you know, Bible Bible stuff, where we don't agree. Uh, and, and thankfully, he's been you know open to to some opposition, even with spiritual fa fathers. I think we we can have the same thing, the same issue. Maybe we can admire them a lot and and think, wow, you know, what what this guy is saying, that's great. <laughs> that's awesome uh, and we can sometimes be more of a fanboy growing more in our christianity is realizing they're not perfect either so there are going to be some mistakes yeah the church fathers wrote a lot of good stuff but there's also stuff there that what david was saying they're writing in their own context so maybe peace was not a big thing to talk about since after constantine they had some sort of peace 
So why writing about it? The church was on the was not being persecuted anymore. They're on the on the good side. <laughs> they they always wanted to not be persecuted. Of course, you know, even we would like not to be persecuted. So that it's a comfortable place to be. So you know, it wouldn't be an, a topic to to talk about too much. Doesn't mean they didn't believe that something that God would bring. I think realizing that they're not perfect helps a lot. You know, we can have a different conversation with those writers when we realize that. Conversations can actually begin because, you know, again, when I was a kid, I just accepted my dad's truth as the absolute truth. You know, it's my dad. He knows. (laughs) He knows everything. He knows best. Now we can actually have conversations because we (laughs) believe certain things in a different way. Our relationship grows even more out of those conversations instead of just accepting everything as it was. And so I think even with the councils of, of, you know, that the church has had, they had a particular context. A long time ago, Matt asked me if I, you know, if I agreed with the Nicene council. And, you know, there are things that I think when it comes to the gospel, they left out. (laughs) They kind of skipped from he was born to he died. (laughs) And where's his life? (laughs) I'm not saying that everything in in that uh, creed is wrong, but I think it's incomplete. We can have a conversation about it. That that would be my point of view with that. I, I don't think any of the fathers, even, you know, even the apostles, you can, we can see that they had some problems even between them, like Peter and Paul. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that nobody outside of Jesus was perfect. So realizing that can help to have a different conversation with them, uh, to have a different relationship with those authors, too. And see, well, you know, Paul was a great missionary, but he also had a temper. <laughs> he uh, he was also kind of problematic. So, uh, you know, that, that can, uh, at least in my view, that helps me see that, well, maybe I need to figure out what they were saying that was actually what God wanted and sometimes figuring out what they wanted. Uh, I think I came to realize that more with the prophets, especially like Habakkuk. He's complaining like, where, where are you, God? When are you going to fix things and, <laughs> and all that? But, you know, the answer is, well, if you guys have been living the way I asked, <laughs> you wouldn't be in this mess. But even prophets forget. Uh, you know, you have people like Jonah. He's a prophet of the Lord, but still, <laughs> he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He was a good Israelite. He was a prophet for Israel, not for Syria. So... Everybody can have mistakes, even those who speak from God. But Paul, aren't we talking about though? So let me let me ask this, and I and I, and I, I agree and appreciate that. I, I would want to remind you though, there there is that bit there in the Nicene Creed that I do think is very important for us to remember, and that is is that He came down from heaven and was incarnate, which is an important word, of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary, and became man. That you know we would need to unpack what that statement in the creed means because i do think that it means that that that's inclusive of him becoming incarnate is him becoming truly human and so that encompasses his teachings and his practices but we could we could talk about that so i do think that that's there in the creed but then i would just want to add to that that paul with everything that alan said i would want to agree except for remember kierkegaard's article that there's a difference between a genius and an apostle and he's not talking about that the apostles were smarter than geniuses he's actually saying the exact opposite he's saying that they're inspired by god my question is is though is whenever these councils are convened so even think about the septuagint you know it was the group of the 70 who came together and said okay we're going to translate the bible you know we're going to translate god's word and it's going to be handed down to the churches and so it was a group of inspired one would hope men or one would have to have faith to believe and so i just i guess i thought that that's what was happening you know, in the, in the sort of the ecumenical, that's why they're called ecumenical councils, that you have large groups of men who are coming together to compare their scars, you know, that they've received because of the faith, their whippings and beatings and scourgings and things like that. And then they're coming together as a group, a large group of not just, got, you know, regular guys, but guys who are the church now considers, you know, the greatest saints filled with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, you know, and coming together collectively as a group where, Again, it's a it's a position of faith, but one would hope that the Holy Spirit then is working through those, let's call them 70 men or, or more, to hand down the faith once for all to the rest of the church. That's why we call them church fathers. That was my question. Let me argue on your team a minute, Matt. 
I know this is frustrating for everybody. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> and that is that partly what you're saying, uh, actually a, a kind of critique of J. Denny Weaver and this idea that in the council something got left out. And the discussion is, well, wait a minute. The ethics of Jesus or the life of Christ, even in the New Testament, we see that Paul is not focused on that. And so to imagine that the councils are doing something that is different, that it could be that that's assumed. In other words, I, I'm not completely on J. Denny Weaver's team here. He just thinks that these councils are to be thrown out. I think we're all kind of agreeing, and that is, see, this is my Japanese-ness. I want us all to have a consensus. If, that if is, I want your opinion, Paul, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> the councils were an addendum. They were not foundational. You know, that's what Weaver is saying, oh, is that one foundation replaces another. I don't agree with him there. I think that there was an understanding. They're still looking to the New Testament as an authority, and here is an interpretation. However, I do agree with what I think is coming out, is that we still need a critical reading. You know, we need a critical reading of everything. I think that's what we're all saying. Whoever it's coming from, even even let's say that it's a, a word from God, that God speaks into our ear. Do we still need to interpret that and understand that? Or do we just kind of absorb that and we just, we just repeat it? Well, I think it has to pass through our own mind. And this is partly, I think, the, the thing that we're actually discussing here. How is it that human thought even works? You know, this is what I think Paul is arguing. The letter kills but the Spirit gives life. If we imagine that there's a formula or a creed or a doctrine that can encapsulate and embody, you know, replace uh, even an embodied Christianity, we're missing the point, no, we have to embody it. That part of the work of the Holy Spirit is our own absorption and understanding of what is given to us, even by the voice of God from heaven. We still have to think about that. We're never, we're not a people of the book. You know, I think that's a misunderstanding. The Jews were a people of the book. We're a people of Jesus. We follow Jesus, and he's a living, whole person. And so we can never, even if it's perfect, even the idea of perfection in a creed or in a Bible is already a kind of misconstrued understanding as if the perfection of Christ can be engraved on stone. You can't do that. So having said that, what thinking always involves us in is a critical process. And that was actually my singular idea. I'm not saying that, the, the, oh, they got it wrong, but at least we need to read it critically. We need to understand the context. We do need to take into account the power play that is working there through Constantine. I think we need to hear a voice like J. Denny Weavers, who is saying, well, have we got the fullness of the gospel in these creeds? Who could say that we do? I don't even think they were saying that we do. And so these creeds will have to continually be balanced out. They are not, an, uh, and were never meant to be a foundational authority. I think that's where Weaver is wrong. And we are wrong if we agree that the creeds are foundational. Not even the Bible is foundational in that sense. Jesus is the one foundation. Christ is the one true foundation. And so I think that what I'm describing is not simply that the devil took over and the Holy Spirit lost, but the way that the Holy Spirit works is through each of us that we're going to have to, we have to do this thing for ourselves. We can't simply, as Alan put it, we can't say, well, this, you know, my dad does my believing for me. We can't do what David said, well, that we know because it's my country and we bomb Iraq. My country does my believing for me. 
each of us, I think, are describing a situation that we take this belief up, we take up our understanding of who Christ is, and we walk with it. And to imagine anything less than that, I think that is falling into a creedalism, which is not a condemnation of the creeds. It's just to say, well, that's not the end of the story. I'll put Paul. I think that's true. And I think a lot of the time, I think of that whole idea of outsourcing our faith. And I mean, I haven't been a part of a church now for three years. So I have the opportunity to create my own, my own religion, my own spirituality. We've all been doing that. There's three, there's three and a half billion Christianities in the world. And I, oh, I'm playing a bit the devil's advocate, but just to stay on that devil advocate path, as I was writing something down, I thought, you know, my idea of evangelism is I don't care what you believe. It's what, how you behave. If I can help you to live like Jesus, become self-giving, self-sacrificial, I don't care what you believe or what you think. If we can just treat one another with dignity and respect, isn't that the Spirit's work? Isn't this, I mean, yeah, to me, and again, I know that that's, that's where I'm on in my path. And I know yesterday Hans Kuhn passed away, the Catholic theologian. I, I know he was somewhat upon that I, I, with, with Niebuhr and the anonymous Christian. The Spirit is working in the world. And so even all these Calvinist friends I interact with on the Internet, I don't think any of them, as much as they have their beliefs, I don't think any of them want to kill me now. 300 years ago, 400, they would have wanted to find me and kill me because of what I believe. The Spirit's working in their life because they're living the Jesus ethic now, even though they may have their ideas crazy. A violent God, a violent belief in a violent God is great if you want to sit in a church with everybody else and sit around and, and worship your violent God together. But you're not going to have any success out in the world trying to win people to faith because they see right through it. And they see, if you've got a God that needs Jesus to die, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I think that's where this whole nonviolent move this whole nonviolent thing is going to, hopefully it's going to be the future of the church. I think it's fantastic what's going on. And it's, it's brilliant because we're talking about ethics and behavior, not about beliefs. And I can, I can yeah, I mean, that's, that's my deconstruction and it continues to go. And I've got lots of opinions, very few beliefs now. But I do, I'm of the opinion that God isn't violent. <laughs> Did the church change from a practice system to a belief system through the creeds? Yeah, I think that's what Tim is saying, that practice is belief. That doesn't sound right. But I think that's the reality, that practice is, in fact, a deeper-seated belief system than the thing we would do in our head. And I think the, the, what we are driving for is discipleship, you know, the discipleship, the imitation of Christ. And in the focus on a belief system, on creedalism, on doctrine, that understanding, where it's separated, I, I don't could argue where it gets separated. But clearly with Constantine, the beginning of that separation is occurring. And can we point at the creeds and say, well, perhaps they reflect what is happening culturally, and perhaps we need to be aware of that and not simply presume that God is speaking through what Constantine called himself the bishop of bishops when he is not yet a Christian, even in his own eyes. He's saying, I'm going to wait to be a Christian, and yet he wants to reign over the church. Maybe we should raise a question and say, oh, well, perhaps we need to take that into account. Of course, as we talk through all this, I feel like some good points have been have come up, and there's a part of me that my statement is, is somewhat limited because I don't want to simply blame the creeds, uh, nor are, are the creeds possibly not, not important. They certainly had importance in their day and, and certainly importance to others. But in a sense, the creed has no power, kind of like what Alan said, you go from birth to death, but what about the life of Jesus, right? The, the problem maybe with the, the creed is, is that if you just become creedal in a sense, you miss the whole life of Jesus. You miss, and well, you miss what it's all all about. I mean, so the creed can have power if the you know if the practice is there. I mean, we've created a church of it's a belief system. You know, I just I was just thinking, you know, like our website. What do we believe? Maybe I need to have what do we practice? Maybe we need to stop asking people what do they believe. I think, which by the way, going back to Kreider's book, they delayed baptism 
until uh, the person had developed habits and practices. Anybody can, can teach a, a six-year-old, repeat after me, death, burial, resurrection. All right, let's baptize you. Anybody can do that, but the practices are, are, are something different. David, I was thinking as you're talking about those statements of belief, and I think it's because we've grown up in this culture where you've got to have the right beliefs. You get it wrong, one thing wrong, and you're going to lose that eternal reward. You know, Peter at the gate is going to have a little list of orthodoxy, and if you don't have homosousius or some of these words down correctly, you might not get in. So we better get it right. You know, I mean, that's kind of almost how we've treated it. And it's, and it's funny here, Matt, I know you'll appreciate this. I have a friend, he's been a friend, he's my electrician. He belongs to what's called the Canadian Reformed Church, and they are very, very, very creedal church, Heidelberg Catechism, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And um, they're virtually Sabbatarians, like they're very careful what they do on Sunday. You know, that's just really, really important. But he ran, he's kind of been a fan of Hank Hanegraaff, ran across him, found out he'd become Orthodox. And so he's on the web and he says to me the other day, you know, I've been reading a lot of this Orthodox theology and they really got a lot of, they really think a lot differently than we do. And I, I really like what they're doing. So I thought that's really interesting. Even here's this friend of mine who's been baptized into creedalism and all that. Still, there's just this openness toward other traditions and starting to challenge some of his own deeply held beliefs. So there's hope for us, Matt. We're moving toward the East. Well, I don't, I don't know about that, but I do think that there, you know, I, I understand that the Christian church is very, you know, anti-credal, but I think that there are true creeds, and you know, and then there's uh, not so true creeds. And again, I, I, I hate to bring this up again, but I guess I just have, being a good Orthodox Christian, I have to say again, that the Nicene Creed does actually address the life of Christ. What <laughs> did that man do? That's all. I'm just, I'm just giving you a bad time. It's one of those things where, like, well, of course, the whole the whole creed, in a sense, is about God becoming a human being. On one level, it's a little silly, you know. But apparently, you know, and, and a lot of the fathers, like, you know, um, John Climacus and people like this, you know, they put, like, hey, this might sound shocking to us. They considered the worst sins to be murder and heresy. Why heresy? Because they were looking at it like this. Heresy is going to bring about all sorts of false practices. It's going to bring about all sorts of evil. Because what this is always the point in Paul's class is that bad theology is extraordinarily destructive and dangerous. And so these guys were saying, yeah, so we're going to, you know, th this is kind of like we're going to set the standard of, you know, little O orthodoxy. And we're going to set it forth in things like ecumenical pronouncements and then different canons. And, you know, to stray away from those things is probably going to end up in something like the Westminster Confession or the Heidelberg Confession or, or whatever it's called. That's going to sort of teach all sorts of awful things about our God who is good and loves mankind. So in other words, I think that I'm with Paul that we need to be critical as good postmoderns to cast a sort of critical eye and even to be perhaps a bit suspicious. However, I'd also want to say in a good pre-modern way that we, that, you know, that this whole thing is not grounded in critical suspicion, but wonder and in faith. To me, the whole thing is grounded in the belief and the faith that's handed down to us through things like I'm just trusting that the Bible is the word of God. Like no one can prove it. No one can, you know, show me. It's a faith. It's an epistemology that's grounded in faith as far as I know. And it's the same thing with the councils or whatever. It's like, well, I, I approach those pronouncements and those creeds and things like that. First of all, through charity, faith, hope, and then perhaps we can say, okay, now, now that we're going to accept the, you know, these are our brothers in Christ, you know, living in a certain place and time, faced with certain, like as David said, heretical teachings that they had to combat in order for Christianity to remain Christian. Like they had to say to the Arians, no, in fact, there was never a time whenever Jesus you know, was not. Jesus always has been. And if you say that there was a time whenever he was not, then that's by definition, not Christianity. And so then it's heresy. And so I'm, I'm fine with that. Like we gotta, we gotta explain what Christianity is. And then I think as Christians who are their progeny that who inherit the faith, we have to like say, okay, we don't make this thing up as we go. We have to say, here's, and I'm not saying that that's what you're saying, Paul, but I think we can kind of easily fall into this thing of like, well, in very good fundamentalist way, the only true Christianity is my Christianity, you know, <laughs> the one that I've, the one that I've kind of, you know, come to. And it's like, no, that's not you. I do think that we have to kind of conform ourselves. I wrote in my Bible during one of Paul's first lectures, you know, Bibthio 101. I wrote in the, like, the cover title page. I said that we must conform 
our understanding, you know, to the Bible. In other words, like we usually, and I wrote this, it's like we usually try to conform the Bible to our understanding. But what we need to do is to have our understanding conform, you know, have the Bible sort of dictate to us like our understanding. And so I, I guess I want to say that, the, that that same Bible was given to us by the church, that we don't have access to Jesus in a sort of private or personal or individualistic way, but that we have access to him corporately. You know, so that word of God that we hear, we got to run not by the church. We can't interpret it privately. And so I would just say that like to, to kind of say, well, we, we don't really need, you know, some of this stuff. Who, who am I? Who am I to say like, oh, we don't need what the saints who are greater than I am. They, they said that we did need it. You know, in other words, it's not optional. It's and it is foundational. I, I would want to even go that far to say that there are that, you know, of course, Christ is our foundation. But the, again, we don't have Christ apart from the church we don't have the bible apart from the church we don't have what christianity is apart from the wisdom of the church and so in that sense that the foundation you know how, how does christ exercise his authority well I, or his foundation you know lism for lack of a better word it's like well i think that he does it through his holy word through his holy church through his holy sacraments and not in just like a personal private way not to say that that's what you're saying Paul, but i just want to add that let, let me disagree with me you're quoting I love me. when you do that. Huh? <laughs> I love whenever you do that. <laughs> and, and especially whenever you end up agreeing with me, it's even sweeter. <laughs> I, I think that we do conform our understanding to the word. But if I said the word and then I said equated the word with the Bible, I don't know that that's where I'm at. Because I think the word is Christ, which is inclusive of Scripture. But as you're saying, inclusive of tr tradition, inclusive of a history of interpretation, and ultimately inclusive even of my own walk with Jesus. In other words, I don't want to leave the interior or the personal out of this. Right, we have to right. include ourselves into it. And so I, th I think that we can make the Bible our pope. We can make the Pope our Pope. We can make tradition our Pope. But Jesus is the foundation. And that, I think, puts us in a kind of tension that even in the Bible, it's not like, oh, there's no tension there. No, there's a tension even in the New Testament. It's not just laid out there for us that, you know, oh, well, here's what it means. No, we have to work through that, that it's not clear. Everything within the method, they would, what, what, and it's not actually Wesley who made it up. It was someone else who, so we have tradition, we have experience, we have the scripture and we have reason mm -hmm. and those four work together. And we have Paul Axton. I'm going to make it the, the quintilateral. There you go, Paul. We're your fan club. <laughs> We're going to create a new group, the church of the quintilateral lateral <laughs> wouldn't that be confusing yeah there you go yeah no that's that's exactly what you said you talked about your person you know and 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 what michael harden actually does is or someone did this with him they take this and he takes the quadrilla and applies it to jesus so you've got the jesus of tradition you've got the jesus of the academy you've got the jesus the risen christ of your own living experience and there's the fourth and so we we are constantly in this engagement, in this interaction. It's not static. It's an ongoing, continual movement and relationship. For my money, like Dale Allison is just mind-boggling. He's got a brand new book coming out any day now on the resurrection. You know, he, I mean, Scott McKnight considers him right up there with the top five as far as uh, Jesus goes. So, so that, but that's the academic Jesus. That's not necessarily the risen Christ of my personal experience. But I really like the idea of using that quadrilateral. It, it keeps us in check. Yeah. And so reason, in a sense, we could almost take the creeds and they're part of tradition, but they're also kind of caught up with reason, you know, because a lot of it is uh, Neoplatonism or Platonic thinking about God. And so we can critique that and say, well, maybe there's a better way. Maybe we can move into phenomenology or we can understand God better than even they did at, the, at Nicaea. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for that. That would be cool. And I think as our language develops and as we get smarter as a species, we may have better language to describe those things that they were trying to understand. But, you know, I'm, I'm, a heretic. I'm probably a heretic, Matt. So, but that's okay. You got to love me because I'm an, even though I might be an enemy, you still have to love me. So, oh, no, I love you very much. <laughs> and I, and I truly do, I, I truly do appreciate all of you and all the work that you do and all your encouragement. Let me, uh, I, I hate to do this. I hate to end on a negative note. 
And I almost think it's not a negative today. He said, well, what you're describing is almost a nihilism. And I, I don't mean this in a Peter Rollins sense, but I meet in, in a Kierkegaard. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Maybe I do. I don't know. <laughs> but I think that that's what we have to face is there's a kind of an abyss. There is a kind of darkness. And I think that what we call that is this orientation to death. And that's literally, I think, that in, in seeing the abyss and recognizing it's only by our faith in Christ and nothing else. In other words, that's what this thing is about. It's either this dark nihilism that maybe we catch a glimpse of when we begin to recognize the singularity of the person and work of Christ. That's the whole Kierkegaardian point is the leap of faith. I think I really mean that the way that Kierkegaard meant it. You know, people often mean that as a kind of fideism or an irrationalism. I don't mean that, but I mean there is a, a recognition, I think, in true faith of the bleakness and darkness in the abyss of the alternative. That's good. I like that, Paul. Everybody, uh, everybody happy? I said you said there's something, is it a Japanese thing about everyone being happy? Yeah, yeah. I just, it, it, uh -huh. we want to end the, the group session that we've come to a warm consensus <laughs> and we can all just... warm sentimentalism. <laughs> Beep, <hug. laughs> yes, yeah, that's it. That's it. All right, we'll see you, see you next week or uh, either Tuesday or, or Thursday. Yeah, I'll try to be on both. All right, appreciate you guys. Thanks, Paul. See you, guys. See everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.